welcome to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. I'm Vicky Tung, the Programme Manager for Futures and Innovation here at the Centre. Our annual innovation report brings into focus innovations that can benefit international civil society organisations and also shows in turn how these organisations are benefiting society in challenging or complex contemporary contexts. This podcast episode forms part of our 2020 edition on civil society innovation and urban inclusion, highlighting how a range of organisations are working in cities around the world to deliver inclusive solutions for whole communities or particularly marginalised or vulnerable groups of residents. In each of these podcast case stories, we really want to lift the lid on these innovations and hear directly from the people at the heart of designing and delivering them. Today's case study is one where the successful innovation at its core is delivering data to enable decision-making which matches the speed, scale and dynamism of the urban challenge and creates a means of bringing different city agencies and community actors together around a shared system-wide framework to better understand and solve the problem. Today I'm delighted to be talking to Ayakai Poswayo, who is the Programme Director for the School Area Road Safety Assessments and Improvements, or SARSI programme, at the Civil Society Organisation AMEND. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kai. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to chatting. Me too. So please, can you introduce AMEND and what you do? AMEND is a non-governmental organisation and we deliver safe and healthy journeys mostly in developing countries, through safe infrastructure, engineering, research, training, and advocacy. We have programs in over about a dozen countries with offices in Ghana, Mozambique, and Tanzania. We have a very strong focus on sub-Saharan Africa, and our work runs along the rural-urban continuum, but the nature of road safety is such that most of our work is in the urban setting. So what's the big idea behind Sasai? The big idea behind SASAI is to reduce the risk of children who walk to school, so the risk of road traffic injury on their journey to school, by creating safe pedestrian areas around their school and also providing education at the community level to tackle the problem of road traffic injury, which is such a big issue, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. We also do data-driven advocacy and we offer technical support for decision makers. So a key aspect of the safe areas we provide for children around their schools is to ensure that there are reduced speeds of vehicles in those areas. Um, Research shows that um, for a vehicle traveling at 50 kilometers per hour in the event of a crash, the chance of pedestrian survival is only 15%. Now, if the speed of that vehicle is reduced to 30 kilometers per hour, the chance of pedestrian survival increases to 90%. So we see the exponential difference in in chances of survival depending on speeds of vehicles. So a key aspect of SASA is ensuring that for places where children interact with motorized vehicles, that these vehicles are traveling at speeds which ensure their safety. The World Health Organization has published some compelling statistics globally around 1.35 million people die from road traffic injuries each year. And road traffic injury is actually the number one cause of death for persons aged 5 to 29 years old worldwide, which I think is something which many people don't know. 
And it may also surprise people to know that road traffic injury-related deaths are more than 1.7 times that from HIV-AIDS, malaria, and TB combined. Nearly 90% of these deaths occur in low- and middle-income countries, and Africa has the highest road traffic injury rates in the world, as well as the lowest motorization rates, which just shows, you know, the level of risk. Also, a child in Africa is twice as likely to die in a road crash from a child anywhere else in the world. In the, a lot of the cities where Amend works in sub-Saharan Africa, because of the lack of safe pedestrian routes, and also the fact that the majority of children in these settings are walking to school, it means they are facing very high risks. We had carried out a survey across a number of countries and found that where we work, over 80% of the children were, were walking, and their journey to school is one of the most you know, frequented journeys a, a child would make. What are the kind of experiences and risks which the children might encounter on these daily journeys to and from school? As part of the SASI process, I've had the opportunity to visit many schools and also to accompany children on their journeys to school to sort of experience exactly what they experience. And there's one journey which I particularly remember um, in Accra, Ghana, where I was crossing this or attempting to cross this road, which many children attending one of our schools needed to cross to get to school. And it was a road with very high volumes of traffic, with a very high proportion of trucks all moving at very high speeds. And it was just so difficult to find gaps in the traffic to cross. And there was no form of pedestrian control which would stop the traffic to enable the children to cross. And I just thought, my gracious, I mean, as an adult, I was terrified. And I could only imagine what a child who's, you know, a fraction of my age and less than half my size would feel on such a journey. So this is clearly a really big public health problem, but it sounds like it's quite unrecognised or underappreciated. What are the factors behind that? There's a a high level of underreporting of road traffic injuries in low and middle income countries. Police records don't really reflect the true scale of the problem on the ground. And this has been proven through a lot of research, which has been done in different settings. And so you realize that if you just look at the national statistics, the problem is bad, but it doesn't look as bad as it actually is. And then I guess the other thing is that road traffic injury is not just a public health issue. It's also an engineering issue. It's an enforcement issue. So unlike, say, another public health issue, like say, like malaria, or any other disease which may be the sole responsibility of one government agency, say the Ministry of Health, with road safety and road traffic injury, it's the responsibility of a variety of agencies. So the Ministry of Health has some involvement in in making sure that this public health issue is addressed, the Ministry of Transport, the police, it sort of cuts across a whole range of sectors. So it sounds like it's everyone's responsibility, so maybe no one's responsibility, which is why the approach that you've got about bringing multiple actors together around data, which shows the full extent of the problem, is so important. So one of the inclusion dimensions we're focusing on in in this report is integrated systems-wide approaches. What does this look like for SASAI? With the SASAI programme, we work at different levels of society. 
and starting from the grassroots, so starting from communities where we first identify where there are problems of road traffic injury for children at particular schools. We then take information from that level and connect it to people like city engineers, so people working with the government, municipal engineers, to bring that information to their attention. So that's sort of another level where we're working. In Tanzania, where we've done a lot of our work, at the national level, we're part of a coalition which is advocating for changes to the Road Traffic Act and specifically looking to introduce 30 kilometer per hour speed limit around schools. So that's sort of another level where we're working at the national level. And we've had the opportunity to work on some larger projects, which sort of came after we had uh, implemented SASAI for a number of years and gained the experience and, and the credibility. So in Tanzania, we've had the opportunity of offering recommendations on a World Bank project across eight cities where there were hundreds of kilometers of road being put in and we could offer suggestions for improvement of safety on these roads, particularly looking at the needs of children. So you've really gone from small scale where you're influencing the roads around schools, the immediate area outside schools, to now really operating at a scale where you are influenced the design of really, as you say, hundreds of kilometres of new roads around schools, bringing communities into otherwise more technical infrastructure designs and proposals that they would presumably otherwise have been excluded from and their needs and their the kind of the lived experience of the children that you've just kind of shared that that wouldn't really be understood or accommodated in these in these designs. That's right yes I mean so our work on this project I I was referring to the World Bank project which is this Tanzania Strategic Cities project has been quite a recent thing and it really helped us like you say, bring the lived experience of the children into what was going into the designs. Because sometimes we realize that the designs, the engineering designs of roads are quite out of touch with what children are experiencing on their journeys to school, for instance. And so the SASAI, our experience on the SASAI program enabled us to provide that sort of community input into the design of these roads. So another systems dimension is we've already touched on all of the agencies and organizations and people involved in the SASA initiative and who touch the problem, essentially. Who are the different types of key stakeholders you engage in the delivery of the program? So, of course, we like I mentioned, we start with the with the community. So they are a, a key stakeholders. So the children, the parents, the teachers at schools. And then moving up a level, we we work with the municipal engineers. In Tanzania, a lot of the roads fall under the jurisdiction of the Tanzania Rural and Urban Roads Agency. So we work with engineers from there. We work with the education officers from municipal councils. We work with uh, people from the Ministry of Transport. The private sector is another one of our stakeholders. Um, a lot of our SASAI work is sponsored by, by private sector organizations. Academia, we partner with different academics in order to publish some of the research which we've done related to SASAI. The media is also a very important stakeholder. 
we usually have ribbon cutting events after we have implemented for structure changes around uh, schools and we invite the media also to these in order to bring attention to the issue of safety on, on the roads for children. And you're also working now with uh, other non-profit organisations uh, and NGOs in other countries, which I think we'll talk about later as well. You've described Abend as, as being the glue that brings all these different actors together to better understand the problem and, you know, read, um, meaningfully co-design solutions with communities. What are some of the different ways in which you're able to do this? We do this through a, a number of activities. So maybe I'll start with our, our community consultations. So we, we start by speaking to head teachers, children, parents, even people who might sell things outside a school are the eyes on the ground every day and observe some of the road safety challenges that children may be facing on a journey to school. And what we do is by speaking to these people, we then take their experience and present it to the municipal engineers and other key stakeholders who I've mentioned about before um, to bring to the attention what the experience of communities are in those particular settings. Another way we bring our stakeholders together is through the ribbon cutting events I, I spoke about. So once infrastructure is in place, we have a ribbon cutting event where we invite people from the school, people from the community, parents, the municipal engineers, the police, ministers, we've had mayors come to our events. And it's sort of a celebration of, you know, what, what we've managed to achieve outside that school. And again, as I had mentioned before, the media is also invited there to bring attention to the issue and to create some form of visibility around the issue. So it's a sort of celebration together with all, all stakeholders. A key aspect of how AMEN sort of serves as the glue to bring stakeholders together is through our roundtable discussions. So we organize high-level roundtable discussions to bring decision makers to the table, but also members of communities to share their experiences and also brainstorm on solutions to this problem. A very powerful tool we use is to try and get parents of children who have been involved in road traffic injury to share their personal experiences. And we've also once had a, a doctor who works in the emergency department of a hospital and was faced every day with, with children coming in injured from road traffic, also share her experience. And that was a powerful way of sort of hitting home this problem with the people who are making decisions which might be contributing to this, this, this problem on our roads. Finally, we've had workshops on the World Bank projects I spoke about previously, held a number of workshops to bring engineers, environmental and social impact assessment consultants, people from the community together to share their perspectives from the different aspects of their work. And in the case of community members, share their perspective of what they, they face every day in order to make sure that whatever designs are being put in place, they are being designed with the experience of the people who are going to use them in mind. 
And so what other kind of community level changes and involvement does the programme bring for school children, um, parents and teachers? Probably if you could start with what the infrastructure changes look like uh, and then maybe talk about some of the other ways of community engagement. The infrastructure changes are generally low cost interventions which are put in place. So we typically have things like speed humps, which are critical in making sure that we are able to reduce speeds of vehicles around schools. We have footpaths to separate children from traffic. We have zebra crossings to provide dedicated and safe crossing points, bollards. We sometimes change the position of school gates to encourage travel along less busy routes. And all this typically we would spend about the equivalent of 25,000 US dollars to implement these improvements. In terms of the community engagement, it starts with diagnosing the problem. I've spoken about how we chat with children, teachers, parents, people who sell outside of school to understand what issues are. We do a lot of observation ourselves. And then we collect data We don't just um, base our interventions on the consultations, but we also make sure we have data to to back it. So we would would find out what proportion of the children are walking, where they're walking, where they're crossing the road, what proportion are cycling, what proportion are are traveling by, by bus. And then another aspect would be the education we provide to the, the school children as well and the communities. And this is to um, touch on some of the key sort of behavior changes which might help improve road safety around their schools and, you know, in general. So in terms of the outcomes that you've achieved with the program, what are the particular highlights in terms of um, scale and advocacy successes and things like that? So to date, as of, you know, um, June 2020, we have improved infrastructure in 27 school areas in Tanzania. Um, And each school area may um, comprise more than one school. Um, We've covered 60% of the highest risk schools in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and benefited 38,000, over 38,000 primary school children. So in total, we've implemented SASAI across um, nine countries, including Tanzania, and we've reached 48 school areas. Um, And like mentioned, each school area may include more than one school. So those 48 school areas actually cover 70 schools. And we estimate that um, based on the results of an impact evaluation we carried out in in Tanzania, that 500 injuries have been averted each year. We've also had the opportunity to to influence larger projects more recently, the World Bank projects I I spoke about, and we've been able to influence um, municipal engineers in some places to rethink the the manner in which they design uh, for pedestrians and and other non-motorized users in, in cities. On a policy level, In Zambia, we've managed to work with a local partner to change legislation of speed limits around schools to 30 kilometers per hour. In Namibia, working with a local partner there as well, we managed to secure a policy change to ensure 30 kilometers per hour speed limits around schools within the city of Vinduk. 
that's really impressive the scale that you've been able to achieve and and right from the the, the street level right up to kind of national policy level as well uh, we can't really make a podcast now without talking about the effects of COVID-19 on organisations' work. Uh, what kind of adaptations have you had to make over the past few months um, because of the because of the pandemic? So just as um, or just before the the, the start of this um, COVID-19 pandemic, we had started working on a project in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, where we were assessing the safety of pedestrians and other non-motorized users on a a road which had recently been upgraded and found to be causing more crashes. And we were doing that through um, community consultations to first try and understand what the problem was. And then in the middle of that, uh, unfortunately, there was the COVID-19 pandemic. And so there was the move to working remotely. So we had to um, quickly rethink the way we were carrying out this um, this community engagement. And something we tried and seems to have been relatively successful was to move our, public, our community consultation um, from being in person to being via, via phone. So Luckily, we had contact details for local leaders at at the community level who were then able to put us in touch with with other key stakeholders like um, teachers in schools, pedestrians, school children, parents, motorcycle taxi drivers, bus drivers. And so we've managed to complete this community consultation via telephone. The whole process sort of made us begin to rethink, you know, possibilities of the way we we carry out our work and how other tools and and technology can be used to to further our work in places where we may not um, have have a presence or or it, it's more difficult to to get out into the communities. Um, we've also been been looking at you know the use of of cameras and and 360 degree recordings of roads to be able to to do some of our assessments using those forms of technology. So it's forcing it's forcing further innovations that you hadn't expected in your in your work. Absolutely, yes. You're listening to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation Podcast. This episode is part of our 2020 Innovation Report on Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion. One of the broader innovation dimensions we're looking at is how uh, the approaches in the report are really disrupting the status quo of how things are done or the way people think things work. So starting on a kind of system or sector level and thinking about disruption, how do you see this as as SARSI bringing this about? The first thing I would say is that just bringing, you know, the real scale of the problem to the attention of, you know, decision makers through reliable data is sort of one step. And we um, we carried out a, an extensive population-based study in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania in 20, over 2015-2016 to sort of demonstrate what the scale of the problem was and how a program like SASAI 
could provide a cost-effective and very replicable solution to the problem. And we published a paper from that study. We found that Sasa reduced injuries by 26% at the schools where we had we had implemented it. And as far as we know, it's the only um, peer-reviewed approach that creates safer uh, roads around schools for children in sub-Saharan Africa. So that, I think, sort of has provided a compelling argument which we can present to decision makers. I mean, through SARSAI, you've also had to learn to do, do, do things differently as an organisation. So there's been an aspect of self-disruption to amend itself um, mm. through the evolution of as well as some of the different roles that you've had to learn to play throughout the way the programme has, has changed over the years. Uh, could you talk about a bit about kind of some of this, this self-disruption from, from some of your earlier work at, to, where, to where you are now? And also how you're still in a stage of learning by doing within the programme? So the Southside, the Southside program can sound um, very uh, straightforward and, and logical when one talks about it retrospectively, but then the whole process of, of developing the program has actually been a very iterative pro- process and a steep learning curve for, for us at AMEND. We started off in the early days um, trying to approach the challenge of injuries amongst children by offering education and things to try and change behavior on the part of, of children. But then we realized that over the years, that was not producing the impact that we hoped to see. And so we had to rethink how we were approaching this problem. And it was through actually implementing infrastructure changes, which like I said previously, would help reduce speeds around areas where children were interacting with traffic, that we we began to see that this could then have a very positive effect on the levels of injuries amongst children. And even with the process of implementing infrastructure, we've sort of gone from the stage of implementing two speed humps and a zebra crossing outside a school to recognizing that a safe school zone comprises much more than just that. And we've gone on to provide things like change the positions of pedestrian gates and things like that. And even further along, we've, we've faced other challenges where we, we realize that in the settings where we work, maintenance sometimes of some of the infrastructure, particularly um, when it comes to things like zebra crossings, road markings, is a challenge. And so we've needed to try and think of new materials to use, which would help reduce the demand for maintenance in places where municipal councils and, and road agencies may not necessarily have very large maintenance budgets. And that has also then led us to begin some infrastructure trials looking at different road marking paints and different methods of constructing raised zebra crossings to help reduce the demand for maintenance of these interventions. So you're still you're still learning as you go along even though you've you've really managed to achieve some really impressive scale. Absolutely, absolutely. It's I think the the learning process is never ending and we shall continue to learn and also refine the way 
we carry out SASAI. Something I didn't mention was even the, the method of uh, our data collection methods and uh, the methodology of assessing each school and the risk at each school has developed over the years. So going back to the scale, you've successfully scaled SASAI starting from two schools in Dar es Salaam to more than 48 school areas and 70 schools in nine countries. And you've done this in only eight years. What do you think have been the key success factors that have enabled you to achieve this? So one key area is the fact that we spent some time refining our our methodologies in Tanzania first. And then once we had them refined to a certain level, then they were very easy to replicate in other settings. And so we have a, a common framework for data collection and assessing risks around schools and even identifying our our schools in the first place. So just the fact that that can be replicated very easily has been one success factor. I think that the second one was definitely the study we did in Tanzania, which we published results on the effects of the positive effects of, of SASAI. And that gave the, the program a lot of credibility and enabled us to walk into ministries and and speak to people in high positions of power and sell the program with data to back it. And the more we've done it, the more we've been able to create a reputation and track record, which has then made it even easier to implement in other new settings. So that that was a a scientific impact study, so fully peer-reviewed. It was published in the British Medical Journal in 2018. You partnered with the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention on that. It showed that SARSI reduced injury rates by 26% and cut traffic speeds in school zones by up to 60%. So having this uh, robust, peer-reviewed, randomized control study at a population level has really kind of given you that, that evidence and credibility to show the impacts that you've been achieving through the program, to, which then enables you to, to scale that to, to other areas. Absolutely, yes, exactly that. And SASI has already won a Global Innovation Prize with the first ever World Resources Institute Ross Prize for Cities in 2019, which rewards transformative citywide projects. This kind of independent recognition and visibility must also help. Absolutely, it does. And since we, we won the WRI Ross Prize um, for Cities, we've, we've got approached by other potential donors who have an interest in safety of children and who didn't recognize, you know, the scale of the problem of of road traffic injury amongst children. Apart from potential donors, other stakeholders as well have approached us since then. And I think that prize sort of helped bring more attention to the issue and also adds to the credibility of the program. So you've also had to evolve your way of implementing the project and adapted this to different contexts. Can you talk about those experiences from Tanzania to to some of the other countries where you work? So AMEND has offices in three countries in sub-Saharan Africa, as I had mentioned, Ghana, Tanzania, Mozambique. However, we we do carry out projects in other countries. And in, in those countries, what we do is we find a local NGO partner who we work with in order to implement some of these programs. So this would be a partner who is already involved in in the road safety space or the space related to child safety and protection. 
And in those settings, we would train the local partner on the SASI methodology and then basically work with them in being able to implement SASI in those particular countries. The advantage of this method has been when we work with local partners, obviously the local partners have the local connections and also they are able to use their networks in order to help the implementation of, of, of SASI be effective in that particular context. And also we found that different partners have different strengths. And so the sort of combination of our experience on SASI and maybe our strengths sort of complements the strengths of the partner on the ground. I'll give an example from Zambia, where our local partner is particularly well connected in the political sphere in, uh, in Zambia. And they are very well versed in their advocacy methodology. So having us bring on board the sort of data-driven methodologies from Sasa and having their experience with advocacy was a very good partnership in being able to, to implement Sasa in the, in the country. And that was the country where we eventually managed to achieve a change in legislation of speeds around schools. And it's interesting to, to note that after we had implemented SASAI in collaboration with this local partner at five different schools in Lusaka over a period of three years, just recently our local partner has then on to implement infrastructure improvements around another school in Lusaka totally on their own without any input from AMEND. And that, that's something which makes us happy and, and makes us proud to know that there's some form of sustainability in, in the implementation of the SASAI program. So they were able to also locally raise all the funds for kind of SASAI locally on, on the yes. strength of the approach as well. Exactly, yes. So that's another really interesting part of how you're now able to have influence at scale without having to do everything directly yourselves. So taking a step back and thinking about what we're trying to share with the with our kind of civil society organisations that, that work in these complex urban settings, what are some of your main reflections or takeaways that you see as really important for, for people to think through when working in cities? A very important thing is to focus on data and real evidence, because I think that's the only way to really get the attention of the decision makers or the people who you want to get the attention of for a particular issue. And then maybe the other thing is to find a way to engage such that you're able to bring the experience, the lived experience of communities to the table of decision makers in a manner which hits home with the decision makers. So those two things, I think, are, are very important. So finally, where next for Sasai? You've already achieved this impressive scale. What else are your ambitions for the future? At the beginning of Sasai, Sasai has depended solely, solely on funds from donor organizations and being able to implement the program and ensure that we're improving safety for children around schools. More recently, we've been involved in these larger World Bank projects where 
the funds which are used for the infrastructure improvements do not come from donor organizations, but rather come from the pool of money which is being used to build the road in country anyway. And I think that is definitely the direction we want to go for a number of reasons. One, because it makes the program a more sustainable a more sustainable program. And two, because we are able to then influence, you know, longer kilometers of road. So we're not just focused on the immediate vicinity around a school where children are facing risks, but rather along hundreds of kilometers of roads and large stretches of roads where children do continue their journeys and also face risks. So by leveraging funds from these existing projects to ensure that we are providing pedestrian safety on on longer stretches of road, then we would be having a greater impact. And so that's the direction we want to be moving now, to make sure that we're able to influence roads in a a much larger way. And finally, how can people keep hearing about this fantastic project and these these new exciting stages of your work? Through our website, www.amend.org. Also through social media. So we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, so you can follow us there. And we'll include all those links in the show description. Thank you so much, Kai, for taking time to talk about your project. I love it. And I'm really excited that we can bring your work to new audiences. So thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you, too. You can find links to more information and resources on both this innovation case study and the Centre's 2020 Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion Report in the podcast description. Many thanks to our producer, Julia Pazos, for all your hard work in making this podcast series happen. This podcast is kindly supported by the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung and its Strong Cities 2030 initiative, promoting global collaboration and knowledge sharing for sustainable urban development.